The What Happens in Vegas podcast is hosted by Dr. Stephanie Canistrero, who is a functional medicine practitioner and owner of the Vegas Clinic. Through each episode, Dr. Stephanie will share her wealth of knowledge and insights from being in the functional medicine industry for more than 10 years. Through solo and guest episodes, the What Happens in Vegas podcast will break down the fundamentals of how our bodies function and tangible ways to maintain a healthy mind, body, and soul. She will welcome experts from around the world to discuss gut health, high performance, biohacking, longevity, and so much more. Listen in each week to learn and leave empowered with tangible knowledge to enhance and live your best life. I never attribute an event like I had or any disease process to just one thing. There may be one thing that was the straw that broke the camel's back, but there's always this combination of things. There's always like multiple things in your bucket. Okay, thank you so much for being here. I have been so interested in looking at your Instagram and like just felt so kind of aligned with you because I went through heart stuff as well. So thanks so much for being here, first of all, and taking the time. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Yeah. So you have like an interesting story on also how you got so interested in heart health, cardiovascular health. Do you want to share with us what happened for people that don't know? Yeah. I mean, I guess my initial interest in, in heart disease was because I was diagnosed with type one diabetes at age nine. And I had a lot of other inflammatory type things when I was a kid, but it ultimately ended up with autoimmune. Well, quote unquote autoimmune. That's the theory. Uh, type one diabetes. And so that heavily predisposed me to heart disease, uh, as I was told by physicians um, growing up, um, you know, because of, you know, fluctuating blood sugars and um, how that could damage lining of the arteries and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just kind of always took this interest, I guess, in all my formal education and then eventually personal trial and error and then personal research uh, in the heart. I had a personal interest in that. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, at, at, at one point I figured, I, I kind of realized I had all this information, um, about the heart and I started sharing it on social media and people seemed to like it. Um, mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, despite my efforts and me thinking I was doing everything right about what well, was January, 2021, um, I had a heart attack, uh, myself, a pretty massive heart attack. It was a hundred percent blockage of the um, left-handed anterior descending artery. So, you know, the widow maker, but, you know, thankfully survived and, and the people that took care of me did a good job. There was no atherosclerosis of my arteries. It was just a spontaneous clot mm-hmm. that formed in that artery, which is, is, uh, different than what most people think, you know, mm-hmm. causes heart attacks. And I've, I've kind of dived into that, but so that kind of even got me more interested, yeah. um, obviously, um, because, uh, there was things that I, I don't think I was paying enough attention to. Um, and it just goes to show too, that, you know, despite how healthy we try and be, there are times we can get into situations where these things can happen. Uh, and if you're heavily predisposed, like I am, then it, it can happen. And so mm-hmm. the most important thing is how do we talk about it? How do we learn from it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of thing, but that's kind of my story. And it's why I talk about the heart a lot. Yeah. Well, it's a powerful story. And I know, from my own, my heart story is a little bit different, but mine was more the electrical activity of the heart based on Lyme and toxic load. But I still, it still got me. And like, even the timing of yours, like January, 2021, mine was November, 2021. I worked with athletes for 15 years. Okay. And I've been seeing them have severe heart issues that I've never seen before. 
you know, and it, it got me. And then there was, you know, obviously in that time there was COVID, which is inflammatory. There was also a vaccine that makes the spike protein like COVID, which is inflammatory, but there's also an, you know, an introduction of a new man-made frequency. And you talk a little bit about like frequencies, right? Like these dirty kind of dirty electricity and what that does to our bodies. Right. So I know you had a predisposition, but this was kind of like an acute thing. It wasn't like what they tell you, like, oh, your blood sugar's dysregulated. So then you get like a buildup of plaque of arthrosclerosis, right? Yours was that acute clot that we're seeing a little bit more and more. And I've had multiple athletes with clots in their lungs and clots. So you know, like, do you, do you go into that at all? Because I mean, there's so much that goes into it and I've read your book or most of it. I haven't finished it. I almost like get so excited when I'm reading it that like, it's all the information that I knew I needed to know, but like, it was so kind of hard to find in one little thing. And then I'm like, I need to digest that and kind of go back. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, I just kind of went off on a tangent, but I guess I'm just like, you know, part of it for me is like, what is this huge prevalence? Like, am I, do you think the same thing? Is it the frequencies? Is it the new virus? Like, what do you think made it so much more common right now? Yeah. And well, to be clear, first of all, I've never had a vaccine, that vaccine. Um, and I know, will. and a lot so, of people haven't. So that's right. what I want to add in. Right. So, right. so right. that's the, that's what got me looking into other things. So go on. Right. Now. However, that vaccine, you know, I felt from the beginning, and now it's very clear based on the evidence that it definitely does increase risk of clotting um, mm -hmm. and yep. inflammation of the heart, which is why we're getting mm -hmm. myocarditis and pericarditis and things like that. Um, yep. And that's not an opinion that is based on this retrospective yeah. research of what's happened mm -hmm. since. And that is, you know, a fact. So there's that aspect of things. Um, but for me, that was not the case. However, yeah. you know, I'm predisposed because I'm type one, I'm never mm -hmm. going to have you know, the, uh, as stable blood sugars as someone who's not type one as, yeah. as well, as, as well controlled it is, as it is for me, it's always going to be a little bit, uh, different. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that aspect of things, but I think it's kind of a smaller aspect of things. I also feel like my circadian rhythm was, was pretty out of balance, um, mm -hmm. at that time. And mm -hmm. I was going through a lot of psychological stress at the mm -hmm. time being, being during COVID and seeing lots of things happen that were, um, mm -hmm. I feel unfortunate and shouldn't be happening and yeah. that kind of being out of my control yeah. was frustrating. Um, and then I got, you know, very bad news about a close family member, uh, about mm -hmm. a day and a half before I had the heart attack. Mm -hmm. And I unwisely the morning I had the heart attack, uh, tried to do the usual workout that I do, uh, which mm -hmm. is very intense, um, kind of like, uh, interval training. And in that state that I was in, still worried about this, this, uh, person uh, that's close to me that was in yeah. the situation probably shouldn't have done that. And then you also mentioned this kind of rollout of this new frequency, this 5g, mm -hmm. which was happening, you know, right along the same lines as this, this COVID pandemic. And so, and there's actually, again, I'm not speculating. There's direct evidence, you know, mm -hmm. um, that I could, I could cite and find for people that, these frequencies of 5G do elicit symptoms of COVID, mm -hmm. and they've done that in various cells and various studies. And so, but I'm a, I'm I'm the kind of person that I never attribute an event like I had or any disease process to just one thing. There may be one thing that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. But there's always this combination of things. There's always like multiple things in your bucket. And if the bucket overflows, you get an event or a symptom or something like that, or a disease process. And so 
I always look at all those things, you know, so was it all this stuff that I was going through and, uh, you know, the, the circadian rhythm and all the stress and the type one, and then this new frequency, and then that workout, like it was all these things that led to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the same thing with COVID in general. Like people are, you know, I have these different theories about COVID. They're like, yeah, people were still getting sick and dying. It's like, well, if you create a lot of fear in people, Mm-hmm. um for this virus and you tell them to stay inside outside of the sun you tell them to mm-hmm. stop socially interacting with people they're they're you know not eating well you're encouraging them to eat you know junk food because that's what mm-hmm. the media was saying mm-hmm. um and then and then you roll out this new frequency it's like mm-hmm. yeah people are going to get sick um yeah. that's just what happens and it happens yeah. every year in the winter especially mm-hmm. uh because people are indoors more and it's just you know a change in lifestyle but people are going to get sick. And so that's what happens. And in my case, it was, it was, wasn't an illness. It was, it was a heart attack that happened due to a lot of different things like we're talking about. So we always have to look at it in that perspective. It's never just one thing. hundred percent. Yeah. And so in saying that, I love how you go ahead and talk about, you know, circadian rhythm and how that helped heal you. And that's something that, you know, I already knew about and like, I was feeling good. I was working out. I was doing all those things, or I thought I was, but I had like a lot of the same factors as you, the, a lot of stress, a lot of, you know, taking on like the weight of the world kind of thing, but like these things that help heal you, we all kind of have access to and to understand them more, like even, you know, you're talking about circadian rhythm and atherosclerosis or, you know, so just go into the circadian rhythm and how it's connected to kind of our heart health that you talk about. Yeah. So circadian rhythm, uh, basically like, you know, your body has these internal clocks that are just, they're always going. And they've shown that people, you put them in caves where mm-hmm. there's no light and, um, and no real, you know, uh, ability to tell what time it is. And their circadian clocks still go, they still go to bed around the same time and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but that only lasts so long. You remove yeah. them from that environment. Eventually things get screwed up. So, but for about, you know, two, three months, it tends those, those clocks just keep going, but there are external things, you know, in our environment that can influence those clocks, or I guess, um, create a, create a imbalance, right? The clocks mm-hmm. are going at a certain time. And then if the, the signals reading outside the body are, um, a different thing, like that person in the cave, not getting any signals over mm-hmm. time, this mm-hmm. creates this, uh, imbalance in the circadian rhythm. Uh, mm-hmm. and so those signals can be timing of eating. It can be uh timing of, of movement, but the main one is light. Uh, light is what mainly triggers or not triggers, but you know, balances or, or syncs up your circadian rhythm with mm-hmm. your internal clock. And so, um, and then the main way that we, we can measure like this, or the main thing that, um, an optimized circadian rhythm would be reflected in as far as a measurement would be heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about why that is, but generally if we want to optimize circadian rhythm, we want to sync up our, our body with the day night cycle. And so the main disruptor of this is artificial light at night. Mm-hmm. Um, not just blue light, but blue light too, especially because blue is, is, um, the uh, color of light that tells us what time it is, tells our body what time it is. And mm-hmm. I've heard a fascinating explanation of why that is. And it's because that when life first, like multicellular life first evolved, you know, first appeared in the depths of the ocean at those hydrothermal vents down mm-hmm. there, the only light that could penetrate that far into the ocean was blue. Wow. And so based on that original, you know, uh, formation of life, as far as it was concerned, day and night was blue or dark. 
Uh, and so those mechanisms have been preserved uh, in us in all in all life. And so blue light is what tells us what time it is. And so blue light is highest around midday or about solar noon, which is not always noon, um, mm-hmm. but it's the lowest, you know, at sunrise and sunset. And obviously there's, it's not there at all at nighttime. And so if we're getting artificial lights, uh, especially blue light, which is LED lights that are indoor lights these days, majority of them and fluorescent lights, then that's telling your body it's noon when the sun goes down. And that's a problem for a lot of different reasons. You know, one of them is that your body always wants to know what time it is and where it is on the earth. So like mm-hmm. the example I give is like, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night or in the morning and you didn't know where you were, or what day it was or anything, you forgot for a second. Like it's a very stressful 10 seconds before you mm-hmm. orient yourself and you're like, oh yeah, it's Thursday and whatever. But like, that's what your body feels like if it's getting these wrong. So it doesn't know where it is, doesn't know what time it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's creating that kind of stress response. And mm-hmm. so that can over time, um, if that's prolonged and we continue to get this unoptimized circadian rhythm, then um, it can affect us as far as an imbalance in our stress response or our ability to deal with the stress and, and return to homeostasis. Um, and so that's what that can do long-term for us. If we're always under these lights or, um, you know, going to bed at random times, not always the same time and just different things like that. Um, and then there's also, yeah, staring at screens Mm -hmm. at night and just, you know, staying up till midnight with your people. Like, I I can't tell you how many people tell me, oh yeah, I fall asleep with the TV on. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's a, a huge thing. But the other aspect of this is that is sleep because this is incredibly disruptive to sleep and not just your ability to fall asleep and be unconscious, um, Mm -hmm. but what happens during sleep. Uh, And so if we're talking about, you know, the ability of the body to um, detoxify and repair and Mm -hmm. kind of do what's called autophagy and mitophagy, Mm -hmm. which is basically, um, you know, remodel, uh, remodel Mm -hmm. and make things get newer, um, that -hmm. kind of stuff. It's all impaired if we've got this wrong light at the wrong time. So first of all, if we're not getting morning light, you know, in the eyes and on the skin, uh, especially mid morning, like UVA light, that's Mm -hmm. not preparing us to, you know, make serotonin that will be converted to melatonin once the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we have that blue light at night after the sun goes down, we're not making any melatonin. And that melatonin is what tells the body to have that deep restorative detoxifying and, you know, remodeling sleep. Um, and so you just may be unconscious and asleep, but you may not be getting those benefits. And over time that can really catch up with you, um, as far as an inflammatory, uh, state. So there's just a few of the, the benefits of circadian rhythm. And, you know, the research is pretty profound, like shift workers mm-hmm. who are obviously, um, not synced up with the day night cycle because they're awake all night under lights and things like that. There's, mm-hmm. there's tons of evidence that they have more illness, uh, mm-hmm. than people, um, who are, you know, working normal shifts. Yeah. And I mean, it affects everything. Like you said, heart rate variability, vagus nerve. And that's how, so what were you saying about the circadian rhythm and using HRV to measure it? And what is HRV for people that are just listening? I've talked about it before, but just. Yeah. So heart rate variability. um, I mean, I like to explain it in, in another, because it's easier to, it's it's easy for people to get like, um, it's like the variation between heartbeats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not, but your heart's not supposed to be this steady beat, you know, mm-hmm. time after time. It's not like this, um, those metronome things that go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to vary a little bit. And mm-hmm. I, I, I explain that to people in, in a way that's like, it's like you're in athletic stance, right? Mm-hmm. You're kind of, you know, you know, on your toes, you know, mm-hmm. working ready for, to respond to a baseball yeah. or something that's coming at you. Right. That's, that's the, the ability to adapt. Right. Adapt. Whereas if I was just flat footed, just standing there you know, just a steady beat, 
whatever, I'm not in that ready to adapt stance. And so the heart rate um, is supposed to vary a little bit between beats. And that means we're in this athletic stance ready to adapt to a stress. And so heart rate variability, I kind of, I like to explain it via what's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is a, another marker of heart rate variability or measure of it, but it's just measured a little differently. So if I was to take the pulse on my my wrist and I would take a, a deep breath in, uh, you would feel the pulse quicken a little bit mm-hmm. um, if you pay attention. And then as you slowly breathe out, you would feel it get slower. And the difference between the fastest it gets when you breathe in and the slowest it gets when you breathe out is your respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is, you know, again, this marker of balance in the autonomic nervous system. That's the same as heart rate variability. Um, and again, it's measuring your ability to adapt, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can, if the, if the difference is higher between the two, you can readily get into different states, into mm-hmm. this rest state or into this reaction state. Whereas if you have this narrow, you know, and it's, it's lower then you're kind of steady in this line, you can't adapt. You can't go to either side mm-hmm. um, very easily. And so that inability to adapt is, can be quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the best ways we improve heart rate variability um, and the ability to adapt is optimizing circadian rhythm. Because again, so we can get this imbalance in the stress response in many different ways. There's many different things that can create this imbalance. And all that means is that you have the inability to encounter a stress, respond to it healthily, and then return to homeostasis. Um, and so if we are, if we're constantly getting these signals of stress or of, you know, and humans are unique in that we have these big brains and we can convince ourselves we're in a stressful response, even when we're not, mm-hmm. um, or a life-threatening response, even when we're not, but, you know, imbalance in this circadian rhythm, when your body doesn't know what time it is, and it's kind of in that stress, I remember waking up and not knowing where you are, like mm-hmm. that kind of thing over time can create a more sympathetic imbalance. So like your, your sympathetic nervous system is, is more on alert more of the time. And that can create this, again, this narrow window, your heart rate variability is Mm -hmm. more narrow instead of more wide. So you're not able to adapt. And so, you know, unoptimized or or improper circadian rhythm is one thing that can Mm -hmm. cause this inability to adapt to a stress or less likely ability to adapt to a stress um, and, and result in a lower heart rate variability um, Mm -hmm. signifying you know, we have this, um, we have this incapability of handling stress and returning to normal. Yeah. That rigidity is never good, right? We want to be malleable and able to adapt. So, I mean, that brings us to heart rate variability. We, that's how we measure the vagus nerve. My clinic's called the vagus clinic, the the heart and the vagus nerve, or it's one of the things that the vagus nerve innervates. And you talk a lot about the evolution of, of the vagus nerve and how like in, I don't know, smaller mammals, it's like just the dorsal vagal, right? Mm-hmm. And they can shut reptiles. off and that's how reptiles. Yeah. And they can play dead. Yeah. So yeah. can we go into that? Cause it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I always feel, or I always find for me and my personal understanding, it's really good to know how things developed and came to where they be the, the way they are, mm-hmm. because that helps us understand why they are the way they are and what to do about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if we look at older evolved animals, like, like reptiles, uh, cause yeah. you know, reptiles it was fish and then it was reptiles was plants first you know um Mm -hmm. way back then but then but when animals came around and then when reptiles they eventually evolved into mammals and so there was this thing that had to happen so in reptiles they're cold-blooded they're more slower moving you know or they can only move in small bursts and things like that Mm -hmm. um and so they're just less metabolically active okay Mm -hmm. so they one of their defense mechanisms would be to literally play dead 
and and kind of shut down. They can actually shut down organ systems mm-hmm. um, and still stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was advantageous for them because typically if an animal comes across an animal that seems dead, they don't eat it because mm-hmm. they don't know how long it's been dead. And mm-hmm. they don't want to eat something that's started to turn over and gone bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a defense mechanism for them. Mm-hmm. However, when mammals started to come around, you know, we're, they're much more metabolically active. They're warm-blooded. They're creating heat. And uh, and in that, they have to, there's, they couldn't afford an organ shutdown type situation, okay? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is in a stress response in a reptile, there's this one pathway of the vagus nerve called the dorsal motor nucleus. And that was the only evolved pathway at the time. Um, and if that pathway, if that that stress response got overwhelmed, it would literally lead to an organ shutdown playing dead. Mm-hmm. And that was their defense mechanism. If that happened in a mammal, organ shutdown, since they're so metabolically active and reliant on heat and energy and things like that, organs would die and that would not be good for a mammal. So for in order for mammals to evolve and still have a functioning stress response, they needed a a different pathway in the vagus nerve to evolve. And that's called the nucleus ambiguous. And so um, the, the old, the older dorsal motor nucleus is still there, but we also have this nucleus ambiguous and it's called like the vagal break, right? It's kind of this, um, like we can have that stress response, but we also have the same surge of a non-stress response creating balance. So there's no metabolic shutdown uh, mm-hmm. or anything like that. And so it allowed mammals to have a stress response um, and, you know, react to that stress, get away from it or fight it off or whatever, um, mm. without ever going into a metabolic shutdown. However, I argue that there are certain circumstances where that can still happen mm-hmm. because of modern society. Um, but that's kind of how it evolved. And so we start to see that, that split in the vagus nerve. It's not like it's two nerves. It's just that there's two pathways within the same nerve. Mm-hmm. Um, we start to see that in more advanced reptiles and then fully developed in mammals. Um, and so humans are mammals. So we have this, this split in the vagus nerve that allows us to have this vagal break. But the most important aspect of that, I think, is that, especially for humans, is, you know, we, we all see like a, you know, baby deer being born or baby horse being born. And they pretty much, they hop up and they're walking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they may have things to learn from their parents, um, mm-hmm. but their their nervous system and and lots of the functions of their body are pretty well-developed by the mm-hmm. time they're born humans are not that way. And so in order, it was kind of like this evolutionary trade-off that we had that if we wanted these big brains, we had mm-hmm. to be born pretty early because mm-hmm. otherwise we wouldn't fit to the birth canal um, mm-hmm. if we went to full development of our nervous system. Mm-hmm. And so when a baby's born, it can't walk, uh, it can't function, it can barely digest, it needs the mother's <laughs> enzymes from <laughs> breast milk to, to and and uh, and seal off the gut. But also the nervous system is not fully developed and the stress response is not is not fully developed. And so I've always thought it was funny that like I come across a, a family of deer in the road and the mom like splits off and goes and just leaves the kids behind. Right. Yeah. And I'm just like, man, we're like a human would never do that. No. Like a human would just go for the child and even like put it, put it in harm's way, you know, put it herself or himself in harm's way to save the child. And it's because human babies need this, this nurturing, this caring, they're, they're literally helpless, Um, but they also need this nervous system to be trained. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why we look into baby's eyes and we give them, uh, we make cooing noises and sounds Mm -hmm. of safety. They need, they need to learn what safe is. Mm -hmm. And that, in that first six to 12 months of life, that child needs to learn what safe is mm-hmm. um, because otherwise it's it's baseline. What is safe will be off. 
Mm-hmm. And it will be more likely that it can get into this autonomic imbalance mm-hmm. um, because it's just more readily into that stress response. So this is why things like, you know, especially early childhood trauma are very bad things mm-hmm. um, because they they skew the development of the baby's nervous system and stress response. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just very interesting to to see that um, evolutionarily and how it's changed and how it's specifically different for humans okay. uh, in, in the mammal, mammalian kingdom. Um, so and it's fascinating because it tells us what we should do, not just like from, from birth um, mm-hmm. with our children, um, but also helps us going forward as to different things we should be doing to, to create this balance in the stress response. Yeah. It makes me think about even childbirth, how so much of it mm-hmm. is intervened with now. And like, I feel like, I mean, how much, even when you're born and it's just like blue light right on you and like, you know, you're like poked and prodded at or even the (laughs) trauma of you know suction and things like that you know like all those things or or lots of times they're taken right from the mother and putting somewhere it's just like no it needs to be right there skin on on skin skin. yeah like all that stuff is super important um so yeah and also this is one thing this is a side note but like they don't let the baby get all their blood from the placenta and the umbilical Mm -hmm. cord like it's Mm -hmm. just insane there's so many insane things but that's not the topic of today but i think that it it plays a role also yeah. in development. Well, as far as trauma goes, you can think of it as like, you know, when that's allowed to happen, it's almost like this gradual shift and change in environment. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's not allowed to happen or they're taken straight from the mother, it's all of a sudden it's just abrupt, this very yeah. abrupt change in the environment for this child that has yeah. no idea what's going on. Um, so it's it's just, we want to make that more gradual. No wonder we're all so anxious and people are going back to wanting to do like home births and and whatnot. Yeah. So all of that is very interesting. And obviously then your nervous system, which we talked about plays into that heart rate variability. So that protects your heart. Um, But then, I mean, and also the vagus nerve is connected to so many other things, like even the making of cholesterol, right? Mm. Like, or, or just the functioning of the liver, right. Mm. And the whole, the whole digestive tract. And there's this whole theory, and I'm right there with you, you know, of making cholesterol like this big evil, this cause of heart disease, and we have to block it at all cause, like the statin is the, you know, and it's almost like, you know, I've seen it just observationally and with myself, like your toxic load affects your cholesterol, like your cholesterol is being made for a reason, like, why can't we start to like, look into that differently, like, and start, you know, so cholesterol tell us your views on that and and cholesterol causing heart disease like your mm. your spiel yeah i mean there's really there's really no direct evidence and there's a whole like history of this as far as like how this idea came about with like ansel mm-hmm. keys and yeah um and this you know poorly done research that he did back in the 50s mm-hmm. and how um you know that was kind of before it was even really proven uh because there's actually it's actually one of the most tested you know, nutritional theories, um, mm-hmm. ever, you know, mm-hmm. as far as the research mm-hmm. behind it, but none of the research showed that it was true. Mm-hmm. Um, and however, the theory had already kind of taken hold and lots of different companies and liked that dogma theory. set in. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> it was all driven. Thinking. It was driven by, you know, that theory, you know, provided some evidence for a lot of financial gain for a lot of companies like, mm-hmm. like, uh, okay. So animal foods have cholesterol, animal foods are bad. Well, grain and sugar industries like that, um, mm-hmm. so they can because they're very profitable industries, and if they can prove to people that they're better, and you know, make breakfast cereals and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, then there was a lot of financial push, and then obviously pharmaceutical industry um, had a drug that could lower cholesterol, so it's like, oh, that's a great theory because we had this drug. So 
all this financial backing was put into that theory and it just kind of took off um, when there was really no sound evidence from to begin with. Um, And so now it's just interesting that, you know, people like me and people kind of in the know are having to fight so hard against that theory when there was no evidence for it in the first place. Yeah. Um, and having to provide this substantial amount of proof that it's not the cause when there was no proof in the first place. It was just this mm-hmm. kind of dogma and ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, the, there's really no evidence and, and, you know, dietary cholesterol doesn't really have too much of an effect on, on um, blood levels of cholesterol. Um, but even then, like it's this, it's just, just such a big distraction of from the actual causes from us actually instead of saying and i just i just uh i gave a talk on this back in july um mm-hmm. instead of saying you know does cholesterol cause atherosclerosis we should be saying what causes atherosclerosis yeah because we narrow our thinking so into that does it you know there's so many people that are like okay well i'm going to prove that it doesn't by overanalyzing cholesterol we're going to look at you know, particle number, particle size and oxidized mm-hmm. LDL and LP little a and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, we're just overanalyzing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that's Einstein, right? It's like, you know, he said, you know, we can't solve our problems with the same level of thinking that created them. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, instead of asking ourselves, what causes atherosclerosis, they're saying, well, if we just magically analyze it in the same way, it's going to, it's going to miraculously tell us one day whether or not it does. And that's just, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. flawed thinking. And so if we zoom back, this is something I've looked at a lot in you know, what does cause atherosclerosis. It basically shows us that cholesterol plays very little, if any role whatsoever, mm-hmm. because if you analyze atherosclerotic tissue on a lymph artery, like if you actually take a, a take it from the sample uh, of somebody um, it's clotting tissue. So clotting tissue, uh, it's just the same thing that happens if you cut your skin and a scab forms, you know, a clot forms and it, it stops the bleeding. And that's what's mm-hmm. happening on the lining of the artery. If the artery gets damaged, damaged. Mm-hmm. Um, then the body and, and the repair mechanisms aren't robust enough or they're overwhelmed or we're insulin resistant or or things like that um, that impair that ability to repair. Then the body has to do something else to prevent bleeding because there's blood supply to the arteries. Um, and so it deposits clotting tissue and that's what atherosclerosis is and clotting tissue can build up and build up and build up and create this stenosis of an artery. And, but it's all due to this inflammation and oxidative stress that damage the artery. Um, and, uh, and then the body has to repair it. Now the link to heart rate variability and the vagus nerve is that heart rate variability. And there's, there's actually a lot of research that shows that heart rate variability is a better indicator of, um, atherosclerotic development than, any cholesterol level, um, which is not surprising to me. But if you look at one of the things that causes the most increase in inflammation and oxidative stress or increase in clotting factors, it's it's uh, imbalance in the stress response. It's an acute stress mm-hmm. that the body has developed an inability to deal with, which mm-hmm. is what heart rate variability measures. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that heart rate variability is a better indicator of risk for that, uh, or low heart rate variability is a better indicator of risk. Um, because it's just one thing that can create that inflamed, damaged uh, mm-hmm. response that can damage an artery. And so it's especially problematic if you have low heart rate variability and you're insulin resistant. So you're, you're going more toward this type two diabetic state because that impairs the uh, artery's ability to heal itself. Mm-hmm. And so it's this clotting tissue, but there's, there's more to this story. So, you know, there's supposed to be this normal wear and tear of the artery. 
Um, that's just supposed to happen, just like there's normal wear and tear of lots of things. But the body is supposed to be able to repair itself, like I said, but there's things that can interfere with that repair. However, even when we do get this clotting tissue that forms in the lining of the artery, and we get this buildup of atherosclerosis, and we get this stenosis of an artery. And this happens more in the coronary arteries because they're under the most pressure, mm-hmm. and more pressure will cause more damage. Um, and so that's why we see it more often in those arteries. Yeah. But if we get this this buildup of atherosclerosis, you know, the theory is that that narrows the um, artery, and so less blood can get through, mm-hmm. uh, and that can predispose us to a heart attack, mm-hmm. um, or it can cause angina because of lack of blood flow. I don't think that's what causes angina, which is a different tangent. But <laughs> the thing the thing there is that then they'll say, if you have these soft plaques, these newly formed plaques, they're more inflamed, they're more likely to rupture. Mm-hmm. And when they rupture, a clotting tissue forms and it blocks the artery and causes a heart attack. Mm-hmm. However, there's a few things that tell me that that's not the case. One is there's this a really awesome paper, um, I think it was 2015, called The Myth of the Vulnerable Plaque. It looked at all the evidence for this plaque rupture theory mm-hmm. and showed that in 0.06% of the time when a plaque ruptures, does it cause a heart attack, which is wow. essentially never, 0.06% of the time. So wow. what happens is a plaque may rupture, but the body just heals it. And that's what we get this development of of atherosclerosis, this gradual stenosis of the mm-hmm. artery. Um but it doesn't, those things don't cause heart attacks. And so what does happen though, is if the artery gets narrowed enough and it gets to 70% narrowed, mm-hmm. you're getting 30% of your blood, the body starts to build collaterals around it mm-hmm. uh, that totally compensate the heart with blood. And they've shown that they can form within four days mm-hmm. um, in, in, uh, in mammals. Mm-hmm. And so that explains why when they go in and they look for these stenosis of the artery, the coronary arteries, like with an angiogram, and they mm-hmm. see one, they say, oh, it's 50% narrowed, that's 60% narrowed, we're going to put a stent in. Mm-hmm. They put a stent in there. The research shows that whether you get a stent or not, doesn't matter. Your likelihood mm-hmm. of having a heart attack is exactly the same. They don't work. Same with oh. bypass surgeries. They also don't work. They don't oh. prevent any future event because the lesion is not where the heart attacks are happening. Remember, the rupture of those things don't cause heart attacks. Mm-hmm. So treating them, that mm-hmm. lesion wouldn't do anything. And they, they, the body's already bypassed it with collaterals if it's bad enough. So bypassing mm-hmm. it again, wouldn't help. Right. Mm-hmm. So all these things are very profitable procedures for mm-hmm. the field of cardiology, for hospital systems and, and medical device companies and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But they're not preventing heart attacks. And that's because heart attacks are caused by clotting, just like it happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's clotting tissue that forms. If it's big enough, mm-hmm. it can block the whole artery. Like in my case, mm-hmm. if it's small enough, it could just you know, glom onto the side of the artery and develop this atherosclerosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the the real factors in that paper, I talk about the myth of the vulnerable plaque. The most important thing they say is that rather than focusing on these lesions, these stenosis of arteries, we should be focusing on clotting factors and reducing clotting risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's comes down to decreasing inflammation and oxidative stress and um, increasing blood flow and mm-hmm. decreasing stress. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so those are the big things that will prevent a heart attack. And if you look at the things that are predisposing to heart attacks, it's exactly those things. It's, mm-hmm. it's this poor blood flow and mm-hmm. this inflamed artery, uh, and these high stress people. Yeah. And then if you think of poor blood flow, you know, even like, like sleep apnea is such a huge thing now, even people who aren't overweight. And if our, in our oral microbiome, mm-hmm. when it dries out, that's when we make nitric oxide, nitric oxide helps blood flow get to places. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so yeah. that's 
like all of those like constricted arteries, obviously if they're smaller, then we're getting less, less chance for oxygen to get places, less chance for healing. Mm. Um, I mean, it's just, but that's even getting more prevalent. And again, that's the nervous system, right? When we stop using our, our muscles properly, like for swallowing, breathing, mm. I think a big thing is like electromagnetic fields. I don't know if you agree with that, but like, I feel like you know, obviously we're, we're, we're frequency beings. Our heart has more nerve endings than our brain. I heard is that. Yeah. Well, it definitely sends more signals, sends more brain. signals. To, yeah. 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 So, so the heart's a sensory organ. The heart is, is sensing our emotional state and our, and it's kind of measuring, you know, the coherence of the body, like coherence, meaning like how synced up are all the cells in your body yeah, and communicating yeah. to each other. And the yeah. heart is sensing, sensing that and then communicating that information to the brain. So the brain can have the right neurologic response to the rest of the body to respond to it. So okay. if we think about like arteries and, you know, if, if we're getting this like concerning heart rate variability and like our ability to respond to a stress, if we're getting these sympathetic signals and we're kind of stuck in this more sympathetic state it's never one or the other it's always supposed to be a balance of both mm -hmm. um but we're getting more sympathetic signals then that leads to this high stress state right mm -hmm. and the body's always on guard and that's going to constrict arteries create more pressure in the arteries and you know trying trying to um increase blood flow to areas that we, your body feels it needs to mm -hmm. get blood to to defend a threat or something like that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that's all that pressure just creates more like if there is this state of inflammation, it's just all that pressure is creating more, pushing it up against the lining of the artery more, which is going to create more damage yeah. um, and, and things like that. So it's, it's, it's to me, one of the reasons that heart rate variability, if you look at the research is, is a better indicator of atherosclerosis than any, any way you can analyze cholesterol. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah. And that means you can analyze it and use your breath and use these different mm. circadian rhythms to like protect yourself. Right. And then it can become less scary and you're not depending on a pill and you're not, yeah, that's, that's empowering. But one thing we talk about for even, you know, these kind of silent things happening in the background is that some people don't realize that they're in like this stress state because it's like a stealth infection or something hidden in the body, or they're being exposed to something and their body's pretty good at maybe coping to an extent where they don't, where it's like subclinical, like, you know, so I, I tell people get interested in your biology, like, you know, make sure your environment's safe, like, you know, mold and all the other toxic load, like we're all getting, and you're like, you talk about filtering your tap water, you know, we don't want to get mm -hmm. exposed to like metals and bacteria and stuff that we don't need to, that's going to that stress our body and have like responses that these like subclinical, you know, and then because if you don't have those things going on, you can even better handle these acute stressors, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's all about what signals you're giving your body. That's, mm -hmm. you know, it's all about what you're communicating to your body. And that communication is the environment that you're putting it in. So that mm -hmm. environment could be everything from the relationships that you have to your, you know, how you feel about your job, to the toxins you're exposed to, to the food you're eating, to the electromagnetic fields you're under, like anything that's mm -hmm. communicating to your body, right? And so mm -hmm. the one of the one of the really cool things is that um, you know, we talk about circadian rhythm and how mm -hmm. we balance that. Um, and then we also talk about, you know, inflammation in blood flow and things like that, and how those are the the bigger predisposers to like cardiac events or atherosclerosis over time. And the same things, the same ways that we communicate to our body to signal. Mm -hmm you know, good heart rate variability and also increased blood flow and decreased inflammation. Like they're all the same things. It's, it's really getting back in touch with nature, 
you know, it's yeah. put your feet yeah. on the ground, do some grounding, you know, get sunlight, which is going to help set that circadian rhythm, but also um, is very anti-inflammatory uh, and gets blood moving. Uh, mm-hmm. Infrared light is what, you know, moves blood intrinsically in the lining of the blood vessels, all that kind of stuff. You know, the right electromagnetic field um, of the earth is the one that's compatible or other living things. So like a tree or other humans and, and life, whereas mm-hmm. these man-made ones, these Wi-Fi's and, and, mm-hmm. and 5G's are not compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it's all about that. So I often tell people, cause it's like, you could go into the weeds about all these things, you know, the toxins yeah. are, are not bad, which ones are good yeah, or bad. Yeah. It's like, they're not good. And so like, but the, the kind of the overarching view mm-hmm. I have of it is, is what is real and what's mm-hmm. not real. And mm-hmm. so that's how people can decide if mm-hmm. this is a good thing or bad thing. Cause that's people get yeah. overwhelmed by all this information. And what do 100%. I do? And it's just like, okay, so you're in the store. What do I buy? Mm-hmm. Okay. You're looking at a package where you can't pronounce some things. It's like, mm-hmm. that's not real. That's man-made. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not something that comes natural. Okay. Go over to the, mm-hmm. the meat counter you know, as this mm-hmm. is much closer to real, even if it's been, you know, not grass fed and, and it's mm-hmm. kind of been functional, it's more real. It's more whole food than it's better than a more thing. heavily processed thing. Yeah. Right. 100%. And so that's kind of a, a way you can do that. So what's more real is this Wi-Fi signal that communicates to my cell phone more real or is the electromagnetic field that I put off and, and uh, the earth puts off, you know, is that more real? That's mm-hmm. definitely more real, right? Mm-hmm. The, the earth. So yeah. things like that and and the real light versus the artificial light uh, mm-hmm. that we've created. What's more real? Obviously the sun. So mm-hmm. those are always things that are always going to be better for us. You know, so we don't want to believe all this property. You know, like, you know, I forget what it was. Like Harvard came out. Lucky charms are, are better than, than eggs and Neat. butter. Like, that's just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Or all these things. Like I, there was a study that was like blue light is, is good for us. And it is good for us when it comes in Certain natural quantities in yeah, yeah. and the right times a day from the sun, from natural yeah. light. So, you know, always don't always don't believe all that stuff and just think what's the most natural thing. Yeah. You know, natural is a word that's thrown around everywhere, but it's just like humans, natural environment, normal environment is outside in contact yeah. with, with, you know, the things that are always there. They weren't made by humans and now they're mm-hmm. here. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of see things yeah. through that lens. Yeah. Speaking of things made by humans, because there are some good things, but because there's such great research on like sauna, infrared sauna Mm -hmm. and protecting you from cardiovascular. And I mean, I guess like, because we don't always have maybe in the winter or it's just if people can't like, I mean, that's a really tool that has become more affordable that you can make sure it doesn't have a lot of dirty electricity coming off of that. Like, you know, this, the, the studies on, on saunas are Mm. insane for just like for helping protect your heart. And so, yeah, like, you know, it's a tool and there's some tools that are obviously like better than others, but I think that, that that's like a, like a, a really powerful one when you, when you kind of start to, to dive into that. So I mean, I guess this goes back into nature too, because you talk about like structured water or is it like the mm. fourth phase of water and like, you know, the way that our cell, like, you know, our body or blood moves around our body, like mm. the heart, the whole, the heart is not a pump kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which um, plays right into infrared sauna. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the original source of infrared light is obviously the sun. It's sun. 42% of its rays are infrared all the time, no matter what time of day it is. And so you know, there are certain man-made things that can allow us to help mimic that within our modern time, right? Mm-hmm. With our modern 
day. And so infrared sauna is one of those. Yes, we want to make sure that it's not exposing us to too too much electromagnetic fields. Um, the sun is always going to be best. So use mm-hmm. that. But like you said, in the winter, infrared sauna can be useful as far as not being able to get out as much. Uh, still get mm-hmm. infrared light. But infrared light is incredibly useful for the body in the sense that it does help build what's called the structured water, this fourth phase water. So mm-hmm. the water in our body, you know, which we're told we're, you know, 70, 80% water, right? Mm-hmm. And it's probably actually more by that, more than that by molecular volume. But the water in our body is not liquid in a liquid state. It's it's uh, because, you know, it's not just sloshing around. It's in this gel kind of more solid, say kind of like jello, or yeah. like when you put good mate, good bone broth with collagen in the in the refrigerator yeah. and it comes out more jello like that's yeah. what our water is like and that's what the consistency of my muscles feels like it goes like a gel mm-hmm. it gives but then it responds right back right mm-hmm. and so most of the water in our cells should be this fourth phase water the structured water um but this also forms on the lining of arteries and the lining of lymph vessels and on the lining mm-hmm. of the of meninges and the spinal uh, where the spinal cord is and that helps move the cerebral spinal fluid and so the way that this water forms it it kind of cleaves off one of the hydrogens of a water molecule and then mm-hmm. the oxygen and hydrogen in the left they kind of team up with other oxygens and hydrogens and they make this, uh, they kind of stack themselves up on the, on a, on a hydrophilic surface and all biological surfaces are hydrophilic. And so this happens everywhere there's in the body, um, Mm -hmm. including on the lining of red blood cells, on lipoproteins, on the lining of the artery in the cells, um, on our fascia everywhere. And so when that happens, the structured water is very electronegative because oxygen is kind of this bigger molecule and it's very negative. And then the other hydrogens that were cleaved off, they kind of line themselves up along the structured water. Um, mm-hmm. And that creates this um, this charge separation. There's a very electronegative area very, next to a very positive area where the hydrogens are positive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the most common place we see charge like that, negative and positive, is in the battery. You know, we always have to put things in the right way and the battery because mm-hmm. that's what creates the energy. So that's what this, this water does. It, it creates a battery. It creates energy mm-hmm. that can do work in the body and it doesn't work in lots of different ways but one of the ways is that it moves fluid and they've mm-hmm. shown this in um dr pollock gerald pollock's lab at university of washington uh, they put a hydrophilic tube in water and they put energy into it in the form of infrared light and the water starts to move through the tube no pump nothing there it just starts moving right so, cool. so water creates this uh this energy mm-hmm. and so that's what's happening in the lining of the arteries they've shown that it forms on the lining of arteries and so it helps move the blood. And so the, the heart does do like a little bit of pumping, but it's really no more than enough to get the blood through the chambers of the heart. Mm-hmm. And it's more of a vortex. And then once the blood gets into the line of the artery, you know, half of the blood is water. Um, and so it structures itself and that creates this blood flow, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, super important again for, you know, reducing risk of clotting because mm-hmm. if things are stagnant, they tend to clot more. So if we keep this blood flowing. And so the things that increase fourth phase water are infrared light from the sun or saunas, uh, grounding, uh, mm-hmm. drinking good structured water, decreasing electromagnetic field exposure, decreasing toxin exposure, all these different things can help the body produce more structured water. And so it also kind of totally redefines heart failure, you know, mm-hmm. because heart failure is blamed on the heart not pumping right? But the heart's job is not really to forcefully pump or get blood throughout the entire circulation. There's Mm -hmm. these other mechanisms to do it. And so if you look Mm -hmm. at the research on infrared sauna and heart failure, it is absolutely phenomenal. And I just wish that that was more realized and there was literally 
um, infrared saunas in every cardiac rehab center everywhere, but um, that's not the case right now. As well as um, no blue light, as well as real yeah, food. All as these well different as... things. Yeah. So many I different mean... things, um, but it's pretty profound. Um, They're and doing that, that in Arizona. You know that? What? They're opening a hospital that has like infrared. It has like an outdoor area. It has nice. proper diet. It has it's yeah. I'm in like Tucson, somewhere close to there, but like on the outskirts. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, it'd be it'd be really awesome to start studying their results versus others. Yeah, I'm sure it will be profound. Yeah. 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 It's a bunch of bioregulatory. Okay. Well, your book's amazing. So, um, it's called Understanding the Heart. I'm reading it and I'm going to get through it, but I mean, it's just like full of all the information that in one book that like, you might be wondering if you're interested, which everyone should be interested in their heart health because it's the number one disease yeah. of killing and it's making people, people are dropping dead at young ages right now. And there's more clotting and there's more of this. So I don't want to scare you because we just told you some solutions, but you know, get informed. So that's an amazing book. And then you also have an app, the a heart sense, the heart sense app. Yeah, the app's relatively new and it's just kind of, uh, it's more for like uh, keeping you on track, you know, yeah. lots of information, lots of research in there that people mm -hmm. can kind of read lots of the same stuff's in the book as well. Um, but also it just helps you keep on track and check things off, make sure you're doing these health behaviors throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. People yeah. need that. So yeah, it's like sure. accountability. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then where can everyone find you? My website is resourceyourhealth.com and I do like online health consulting and you can do that through there. And then I'm on social media, uh, just Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And it's just Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. Thanks so much for being here. Amazing. Honestly, great information. We'll for sure do this again. If you'll give me your time, then that would be amazing. Of course, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all you learn and going against like, you know, conventional is it's not easy and I'm, I'm sure you've had you know people saying that are stuck in the dogma so thanks for that as well yeah for sure I mean when I was in the hospital uh recovering I uh I had kind of lost confidence in myself and I was very you know defeated and everything but mm -hmm. then as I went through that experience in the hospital I was like people are going to be in the same situation and I'm yeah. getting so much bad information right now yeah. I, I have to, I have to at least give them the other side of things so they can make mm -hmm. educated decisions. And yeah, it comes from a place where you had to fix yourself or figure it out mm -hmm. for yourself. So, you know, why would you be lying or giving information mm -hmm. that isn't like well-researched? So yeah, right. I think that's an important thing for people to think of. Like we're not in these situations trying not to help ourselves, right? We're, right. we're really, and then we're just trying to use our stories to, educate others so they don't have to go through the same thing to learn the same things so yeah exactly listen from our stories don't make yourself go through it yourself <laughs> thanks so much thank you so much for listening to the what happens in vegas podcast to help support the show please leave us a rating and review also head to vegasclinic.com that's v-a-g-u-s clinic.com to check out free resources how to work with us and more